Hello, product people. Welcome to the new season of The Product Perspective. This year, we're diving deep into the minds of product creators, innovators, founders, and industry leaders. Get ready to uncover the strategies, stories, and the insights that fuel successful products in today's dynamic landscape. So buckle up and let's get started. Hello and welcome to The Product Perspective. Today, we've got a fantastic guest lined up for you, Gareth Ben, the ultimate product maven with a journey that's as diverse as it is fascinating from healthcare and insurance and now the exciting world of travel. Gareth has ventured into every corner of the product universe. Uh, so what sets Gareth apart is his experience across all scales of business, his insights derived from navigating both product corporate giants and agile startups, providing a unique cross-industry and cross-culture perspective. Join us as we uncover his expertise in high-value product management and discover how he's mastered success in the realm of e-commerce. Get ready to glean some game-changing strategies and industry insights. So sit back, relax, and let's get started. Uh, welcome to the podcast, Gareth. Thanks so much for having me, John. You're welcome. Um, before we get into some questions, I'd love to understand a bit more about your move from healthcare and insurance, a highly regulated industry, um, into the world of travel. You'd be surprised. Uh, travel is also highly regulated. <laughs> of course. Um, we just don't uh, don't see it as much. Yeah, it's an interesting one. I mean, healthcare was just the, the first industry that, that I got into, um, not, not ever really expecting to... Um, to have that as part of my my career but it was really enjoyable um part that i played in the, in an industry which is obviously so so vital um you know especially in the uk we've, we've got an amazing nhs but you know there's also a bit of a unfortunately a bit of an increasing reliance on private healthcare, and that's the industry that i was in um so yeah being part of a small healthcare company there um and sort of uh you know, cutting my teeth in, in product was, was a really, really interesting part of my life. When it came time to move on from there and then into insurance, another slight curveball, they're, they're two pretty different industries and that was a, a big relearning for me. But the insurance industry has a huge amount of uh, of backing, of financial backing, um, which is obviously very different to healthcare. So again, a, a big difference there. Um, and then when it came time to move on from uh, insurance, again, another real curveball uh, moving into travel, especially as I moved into travel just, well, we were kind of still in the pandemic. Uh, February 2022 mm. um, is when I joined uh, Kentucky. And to be honest, it was a bit of a gamble because, you know, what happens if there's another COVID resurgence? Um, as I joined, the Russia-Ukraine war started, so we didn't really know what was going to happen with that one. But happily, the, the travel world has been absolutely, we've absolutely nailed it, you know, without blowing my own horn too much um, in the last uh, couple of years or so as travel revenge has come back and we've seen a lot of people who, even though there's a bit of a cost of living crisis, we've seen a lot of people who want to, who have told us that they want to spend their money on travel because they sort of experienced what happened when they had the ability to travel taken away from them and they didn't really like it much and I'm certainly one of those people. Uh, so yeah, even though there's uh, uh, wallets are a little bit tighter at the moment, uh, the appetite to travel is greater than ever. So it's a great time to be in the industry. Yeah, and I think your audience or at least who you market to for Kentucky, that demographic are probably more likely to want to get out and about while they can now, especially, I guess, here in Australia. Kentucky is one of those brands that's synonymous with people who have just come out of high school or university and they, they want to go let some steam off and go on a Kentucky tour. Yeah, I can imagine that they would be definitely wanting to be getting involved more you know, with the brand. 
Yeah, yeah, everyone does their OEs, right? It's an yes. unknown phrase here in the UK. I, I've just learned it having joined Kentucky, uh, but I really enjoy it. Um, and I, yeah, I think it's, a, it's an awesome sort of culture to, to have that rite of passage being your OE once you come out of school or uni or whatever it is. Yes, that's right. Yeah, so we're talking about e-commerce. Um, so what unique challenges do product managers face in the world of e-commerce compared to um, other industries and how do they overcome them um, to deliver exceptional products? So there are plenty of really unique differences um, between between industries, including a really different approach to, to research. So if you take a common SaaS platform, the research that they'll be doing with their customers, let's say it's B2B um, or even B2C, is, is very different to the research that you'll be doing if you if you manage an e-commerce website. Why would customers tell you specific features that they want on a website that just don't think about it? Whereas obviously if you're selling features of a product to someone, uh, to, a, to a business let's say, um, then you're going to get explicit feedback in exactly what they want. But aside from that, the, the really big difference that, that I've noticed is when you do you know product manager training or when you're listening to podcasts about product management or, you know, however you sort of upskill yourself in, in the profession, you really do get, there is a bit of a focus on, on SaaS. People sort of focus on subscription models. They focus on retention, it, you know, think of the pirate metrics, uh, awareness, acquisition, re retention, referral revenue. There's a really big focus on, um, acquisition and, and retention, which is perfect. That's exactly right. That's exactly how it should be. Uh, and they all apply to e-commerce, but they all apply in really different ways than your typical SaaS product. So that's a really big difference. And just to sort of dive further into that, if you take a, a really sort of obvious example of uh, an e-commerce company, uh, do you guys have ASOS in down, down under? Yes, we do. Yeah, cool. So if you take ASOS, you know, fast fashion company, they'll clearly focus on, on all of those metrics. I was talking about the pirate metrics, but are they going to be so focused on activation? Are they offering free trials to, to customers uh, so that they can test out features? I, I doubt it. Their focus is on, on selling and that's their absolute number one objective. And then obviously they have secondary focuses on retention, which by the way, they do really well because they have a, a customer um, account that you can get free delivery with and stuff like that. And then they'll also, I think they, they might um, give you some referral bonuses and things like that, but you can tell that their absolute focus is, is, um, is on selling. And that's the same in, in all e-commerce industries, but in high value e-commerce, it's even more different. Users browse the site tens, if not hundreds of times. So if, you know, if you look in GA, you can see users coming back uh, multiple times, looking at the same products, really delving into the reviews, uh, really wanting to make sure that they're getting their value for money. They're not getting ripped off. The platform is trustworthy. All these sorts of things that are kind of different when you're paying, you know, five quid for, for you know, for a pair of socks or something versus ten thousand pounds for the trip of a lifetime or, uh, you know, a watch or or something um, equally high value. Everyone wants to know the really explicit details of each product, especially with the there's still a bit of a, a worry in people's minds about transacting online, you know, transacting lots of money online. So if they're not convinced of that value for money, they don't have the trust in the brand. And the purchasing journey is a slightly odd one uh, because it's high value and you need to collect more details and things like that. It's uh, it's really difficult to convince someone to to part with their, their hard-earned cash. So it's, it's a pretty unique proposition for, for a product manager, which, and that proposition is really, how can we convince 
convince a customer to part with a significant chunk of their cash purely by giving a good online experience. And so, so what site metrics are you using there to compare? Um, so, like ASOS would be using things like uh, how many times people are coming back to their their shopping cart, what the abandonment rates are like, um, what products are people looking at, how often they're visiting the site. I can imagine that if I'm looking for a high value travel package, I'm yep, I'm going to be going to the site many, many times over a period of many months to make sure that this is the thing that I definitely want to be um, doing. I, I want to be going on this trip. What metrics are you are you actually trying to look at to improve that experience and get people to come back and click the buy button? We use uh, quite a lot of things. So in my mind, we've got, we look at hot job, session recordings and heat maps. We look at visits per session. And then we also look at the uh, basic, well, with, with a number of metrics, we look at the uh, interaction with the content on the product pages and then their likeliness to, to actually click continue. Yeah, um, okay. yeah, that makes, that makes sense. Because when you think of like ASOS with that example or any, I guess, any B2C shopping e-commerce platform, whatever it is, Amazon, anything, I guess they have the opportunity to look at those really high level me metrics and just go, people aren't buying these products. Okay. There's an issue on the product page or people are abandoning the cart. Let's look at cart abandonment. There's no feedback coming in from the consumer for whatever reason, or people aren't buying the the products that complement others and they're not returning to the, to the site. You have a much, I guess, a much more difficult s set of metrics and data points that you need to look at because there's so much more going in the mind of a consumer that's looking to buy something such high value like they're spending ten thousand twenty thousand dollars on a trip versus like you said the, the five dollar pair of socks yeah yeah absolutely the there's there's as i said earlier there's no there's no catch-all there's no one thing that you can do to to understand the mind of a consumer when they're seriously looking to to purchase a, a very expensive product um, yep. online but some of the ways that we do it is we we use hotjar um which i've used i think in every job i've had um it's super useful uh to look at the session recordings of a of a user and uh we, we do that weekly to understand you know how the average person interacts with the page, uh, the parts of the product page that they're most interested in. So we can look at heat maps and <laughs> scroll maps as well. So we, also, we look at that and then we also look at the uh, basically propensity to click continue, which uh, for us leads to the checkout page or the checkout carts. It's based on the number of visits to a page compared to, you know, the uh, it's based on the number of visits to the page divided by the number of times that they uh, entered the uh, the booking flow and then we have we have quite a few sort of ways to try and bring that number down a little bit although we always accept that it's going to be a much higher value than uh, let's say asos where you might get a couple of visits to to a product page before before buying because it's less of a big decision they need to make so that's how we sort of try to understand how the user is interacting with the page and how we generate insights to to help us understand how we can improve it really it's balancing i guess the user experience with the conversion of people through that process process. Um, so I guess in that space, um, at the higher value, but also, well, the ASOS example is really good because I guess there's a lot of competition for e-commerce stores, but especially with high value products, how can product managers identify and leverage their products, unique selling points to create a competitive advantage in the market? Yeah, great question. We do a lot of research to identify our, our key USPs compared to uh, competitors and th this really includes um, speaking to ops and, and this is a, a such a key part of a, a product manager's role it's really really cross-functional and when I say cross-functional I don't mean 
you know, the classic product trio of, of product manager, designer, and developer, although of course that's super important, but there's also a huge amount of stakeholder management and uh, sort of, I don't want to use the word infiltrating because it sounds a bit nefarious, but that is kind of what it needs to be. Separate parts of the business and separate departments. Um, uh, we regularly speak to them to understand what they've put into these trips and they're so passionate about it. It's, uh, it's really amazing to see. So really getting to the source of you know, who's actually made the product and their, their passion, you might not see kind of working on the e-commerce side of things. You know, if you're uh, a developer who's a bit siloed and you just kind of get told, you know, here's your, here's the, the code that you have to do today. You're probably not going to translate the products at magic quite as much as you are if you regularly speak to the people who put it together and are super passionate about it. So there's kind of a, an internal push to get everyone across the joy of, of travel and the, the incredible trips that Kentucky offer, and then taking it just a bit wider than, than Kentucky and sort of industry wide, everyone's passionate about the products that they make, whatever it is. So if you can get a sense of that, that passion across your entire business, then you, you're setting yourself up for success here. And, and I think that a product manager's cross-functionality is really well suited to being that person who's, who's able to sort of synthesize those, that passion and, uh, translate it into you know awesome experiences online or in whatever industry you're in yeah i don't think you'll hear too many product managers listening to this disagree with you on that there's this idea or it's, it's been around for a long time this idea that the, the product manager is genuinely this mini ceo and they need to be coordinating all of the like whether it's in SaaS or e-commerce um, and like you've been explaining, there's so much cross-functional involvement required. Um, it's not just about the design team and the development team. In my experience, it's you got to be so in touch with the customer and so in touch with every department that connects everything together and from the marketing team through to yeah the development and the design product design and and even the administration team everyone has to be across everything and you're constantly coordinating everything between those departments yes absolutely uh, mini ceo is uh, a very well worn phrase and a lot of people would would disagree with it or at least would take some issue with it but it is uh, you know it's probably a grandiose term but i broadly speaking agree with it because it's not just about speaking to a developer and and telling them what to do it's it's really not and people might think that in a startup it's like a really scrappy you're kind of uh, fingers in all the pies which obviously it is but then they might think that in a larger corporation, you're kind of stuck in your lane. You just take requirements and synthesize them into development tickets, and then that's it. But it's it's really not the case at all. There's there's yep. a huge amount of uh, of speaking to people, of getting them on your side, of of um, of convincing people that the right thing to do is is this, and that's a real skill that you can teach to an extent, but is also just learned on the job and and with a lot of experience. Yeah, massive difference between scrappy startup and, and then when you're in an organization as a product manager and you have revenue associated with one of your OKRs, you start to look at things a little bit differently. Yes, absolutely. You might be slightly more cautious, but <laughs> yeah. still, you know, caution uh, is not always the right way to go because otherwise you, you end up sort of not doing anything, yep. uh, which is definitely a, a cycle that you've seen people get stuck in. But yeah, obviously it is a little bit more fraught if, you're, uh, yeah, if your OKRs include 
collude revenue and you do something that uh that messes that one up for a, for a large corporation yeah you're yes. not going to be in the good books no. <laughs> um, so we were touching on it before around analytics and user insights um, how can product managers effectively utilize those analytics and insights to make informed choices and improve user experience and boost conversion yeah this is a super important one I'm going to go off on a slight tangent here. Booking.com. I don't know how much you you know about them. They're obviously a massive, well, booking platform online, a booking aggregator. I did a case study in them a few months ago, and they've really set the standard for experimentation. Everything they do, they release, everything they develop, I should say, they release as an experiment and they split test it. And if it works, then they've been great. And if it doesn't work, then no problem. They'd move it to the graveyard. So this is a really, really interesting setup. And a lot of companies are striving to get there. We certainly are. And we're doing a good job, but we're not quite at the, the level of booking.com. We, well, I mean, we don't have the, the number of, of users for it onto the website, but we're getting there. That makes decision-making a lot easier because if you split tested something, then it's pretty obvious what the answer is, um, unless it's uh, an exact split, which it almost never is. So you'll be taught, I mean, you'll be taught this in, in any sort of product management course or as I've said, any sort of podcast or any, any way that you, you listen, that you uh, learn about product management, but validation before building is just so important. And that bears out in data-driven decision-making test, learn, build, learn. That's how it should be. And if you're building and then learning, uh, it's not great. So the really key thing to remember especially you know what we were talking about earlier in a larger corporation where you've got millions of users um and it's not quite as scrappy as a a little startup where you're trying to get in you know a few a few big accounts or something like that um is to validate developments in the months after confirming their full release after you've already validated them beforehand and then also as i was talking about earlier remember to tell stakeholders a good a good pm is is above all else a great communicator but we often get wrapped up in our worlds and our little worlds and kind of forget that other teams are directly impacted by our work also to be honest it's just nice to get some recognition um, every now and then so you know to get recognition you kind of have to shout about it yeah so getting the validation months after confirm once you've kind of rolled out product or an update or a change is that through looking at the data and just saying okay it's working or something's not right and we need to dig into that deeper i guess in the world of SaaS, we look for that validation through feedback directly from um, our users where yes we'll look at session replays and see how people are if it's a feature update then we look to see are people going through the flow that we expect them to do or what are they are they exiting or bouncing out of the workflow contacting the users and speaking to them because i guess a user's different to someone who's just visiting a website um, and you can have a, build a relationship with them and communicate and get feedback directly. Is it more about trying to understand the data than speaking directly to a user and getting f- direct feedback? Ideally, it's both. But I think yep. for e-commerce, it's uh, the focus should be more on looking at the data afterwards. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. Yeah, we do. We do speak to to customers directly about you know particular features. Like we have a compare feature um, which has been really successful. So try to always try to improve that one. But yes, the key thing to look at is the data. So if you've set your KPIs for that particular feature beforehand, you've validated them with a uh, either sort of an experiment through Optimizely or something like that, or through uh, speaking to to a number of people. So either I mean the best situation is both, but it's normally either quantitative or qualitative 
uh, feedback that you're getting on that to validate it, then you release it and you keep an eye on it. So for example, you might release a feature that's really conversion driven. You would keep an eye out on that particular part of the page or that particular feature or function uh, to understand whether that has directly had an impact on conversions. The only way to really scientifically do that is to run a full split test kind of forever, um, which is obviously not needed. So there's maybe some margin for error. But after releasing and tracking the uh, the release uh, for, a, for a month or for two months or however long um, it makes sense to track it, yeah, you need to kind of wrap it up and understand whether it's been successful um, in the longer term. You might be uh, different levels of success in different markets if you're a global company. And uh, yeah, that's that's sort of the that should be your feature release lifecycle that you communicate to all the stakeholders in the business, really. Out of curiosity, like how often are you making changes and releasing things? Oh, weekly. Yep. It's, it's a, kind of similar yeah. to, to any other. Um, you, yeah, you might be surprised, but it is, it's similar to any other tech company where, yep. you know, the work, the work doesn't stop. Uh, you need to be releasing releasing quite small but quite regular rather than, you know, one massive release a year, which is then outdated in in three months. Yep. So you, you guys are doing um, split testing? Um, yes. On yeah. And do you split test a very specific thing or do you split test a whole bunch of things at the same time? Like that might be different. So thinking of it like a homepage, even split test the whole homepage or just the color of a button or just a button position. You can't, um, you can't split test an entire homepage with lots and lots of changes because yep. you'll never really understand. Yeah. Uh, which of the changes it was that had the effect on the on the metrics that you're looking for. Yep. Um, so yeah, it, it does need to be reasonably granular. And I've always, in every job I've had, I've always wanted to be scientific about the, the changes that you bring in because for multiple reasons, one of them being if uh, it's kind of a hearts and minds thing, if a developer or a product owner or the designer, or whoever it is, is really excited about the release because they've seen the effect of the effect it's had on, on a particular metric, you're probably going to get a better outcome than if you just say, I want to do this. And they kind of think, oh, Gareth's telling me what to do. Or, you know, you know, this is not, I don't think this is going to work. Um, and often you'd be really surprised by the, the user behavior. And, you know, you'll roll something out that you think is, is going to be absolutely brilliant. And then either no one uses it or they're really confused by it or um, it just doesn't work in the way that you, you think it should. So, you know, after however long working in e-commerce, you know, you're still surprised by stuff all the time by how consumers behave uh, on, on a website. And obviously I am a consumer of uh, other goods on other websites and I probably behave in strange ways that <laughs> someone watching yep. a hot jar recording would be like, what the hell is he doing? Yep. Yep. I guess that's a good segue into um, my final question, which is what do you see for C as the future trends for managing high value products um, in e-commerce and how can product managers stay ahead of the curve and adapt to the changing market demands? That is a fantastic question. And to answer it, I have three parts to my answer. So buckle up. Um, one is is what's happening in the world on, uh, of product management. The next is advice on how to keep informed um, as, as best that I can give it. Um, and the last is what I can see some of those trends being. So there's recently been, I think, a sense of disillusionment with product management or product managers. I'm not sure if, if you've kind of felt the same, John, but I think a few people have, have 
found it fashionable or have wanted to have a hot take, uh, which is why do we need product managers? Um, with the it's been in the news. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And it's, it's, it is a hot take, and it's a hot take because it's a relatively new industry. It kind of was sold as a bit of a silver bullet, so maybe it oversold itself. Although maybe I personally don't think that. I think it is a bit of a silver bullet. But I, I guess the the sort of prevailing, well, not prevailing attitude, but the anti-prevailing attitude is you have a great dev, you have a great product owner. Why do you need a product manager? What, mm. What's the use? And, you know, I think there's no danger really for, for product managers. We've shown ourselves to be absolutely vital in the context of an organization for the reasons that we've, we've spoken about already, you know, bridging departments and large corporations, handling all of the, the scrappy, unclear details in a, in a startup and then, you know, everything in between and sort of mid-sized organizations. In e-commerce specifically, I don't see any concern for, for product managers. As the internet becomes ever more populated by younger people who are much more likely to transact online. We've seen multiple studies that, that show younger people are much less likely to pick up the phone or even to web chat. They, they just want to buy online. They don't want to speak to people. So I think as more of those people come online and start buying things and start having a bit of money, there'll be even more of a focus on all the great things that a, that a PM does, which is you know, generating actionable insights, prioritizing them, getting them done, reporting on them, telling everyone about them. I just can't see that being eroded away any anytime soon. And in fact, I think we're going to have to double down on it. Um, if, if anything, the world of, of marketing in high value products um, has traditionally be done, been done by marketeers. And uh, I think what that industry needs to understand is that tech is very valuable right now of course, but it is only going to get more valuable and we really need people to help unlock the value of that, of that technology. And, and part of that for sure is uh, product managers. I wholeheartedly agree with you. And what we're seeing here in Australia, at least, is large, large brands closing their brick and mortar stores, um, stores that have been around since the like, like it's early 1900s, like like 1920 sort of stores that have propped up the big department stores and they're closing down their shops because people are res uh, resorting to online shopping. For me, it's still one of those things that I'm sort of half in, half out. I want to be all in using e-commerce platforms and, and buying online, but the experience, at least here anyway, hasn't been great in some areas. Like for example, with purchasing, doing your full grocery shop online uh, through the, the grocery store's uh, website, you'll end up, there's still a human involved with that normally. And um, even though the the picking and packing of that it, it, for some of them is done um, in a warehouse by machine and someone's managing that um, for, for others there's still a human going and picking off the the shelf and putting it in a, a trolley and scanning it through and then you're missing things because the human element gets involved and the the platform that you use doesn't it just doesn't interact with that component so you you're interacting with the e-com platform but that platform can't do anything to solve your problem so you then have to actually physically go to the place where your groceries came from and involve yourself in that process anyway. Um, mm. So for me, that's a common occurrence through other, at least plat local platforms, larger e-com platforms, you know, they've, they've really nailed the experience for the user um, and you rarely ever have an issue. But for me, until I guess e-commerce platforms really comes back to taking on that user feedback of what are the challenges that users are facing in, in the platform um, because it's a product, taking that on board and, and making genuine improvements to the process and the platform itself to make that experience better. 
Yeah, absolutely. And what you were saying reminded me of a, a cartoon um, that I've seen, which is applicable, which was about startups, but is uh, also applicable to things like grocery shopping and <laughs> even larger corporations, which is, uh, you know, like a um, ticket booth in a train station. The customer who's traveling puts his ticket into the ticket booth. Underneath the ticket booth, there's a guy who takes the ticket and looks at it and then puts it out the other slot of the ticket booth and <laughs> opens the door for him manually. It's very applicable to startups, but it's also very applicable to, you know, like a grocery shop or, or really any, like it's applicable to a huge number of companies, you know, in, in travel as well. The person actually doing the product, which is the trip, is obviously a human. Yeah. Um, so it's, yeah, it's kind of applicable to, to all industries of of, uh, of any of any size, really. Yeah. So I think it's fair to say that um, product managers, in terms of staying ahead of the curve and changing market demands, I think as you know, we head into over the next couple of years where more people are going to be wanting to travel more um, and go to more places. The role of the product manager in that space, um, at least in travel anyway, um, and e-com is going to be more demanding for them. Yeah, absolutely. In terms of, of actually staying ahead of the curve or keeping up with it, the only real advice I can give is, is pretty generic advice, but uh, actually, you know, I think 90% of people don't do it is just sign up for relevant newsletters, make sure you actually read them rather than just seeing them in your inbox. Yes. Um, and, uh, you know, listening to podcasts like this and just generally every now and then just set an hour aside or go for a walk or something and just listen to something or read something. It's, as I say, probably 90% plus of your contemporaries aren't doing this. So that's already a, a an edge that you've got there and uh, you're, you're going to stay ahead of the curve just by doing that in terms of the changes to to high value e-commerce that, that i can sort of sit foresee as i said earlier there's one of them the big one is more young people uh, coming in to the internet and with, with a bit of money uh, trust and legitimacy for, for your brand are hugely important so you know you've got to have a pleasant user experience you've got to promote trust you you have to prove your sort of legitimacy as a as a company that you're not scamming people as an as an aside plenty of ways to do this but great design is key you know and to get great design working in a product trio has been tried tried and tested so would certainly sort of um you know recommend organizing um your sort of squad product squad into that that trio the other the other shift that i've seen recently and uh you're probably tired of hearing this but with the the, the rise of the rapid rise of ai is search so traditionally search has been we've been kind of since we were kids we've been it's been drilled into us that we have to search using keywords think of the thing that you want to describe distill it down into you know, one, two, three keywords, and then Google will find it or whatever website you're you're on will we'll find it through those keywords. And, you know, not everyone is fantastic at distilling things down into keywords, or sometimes the keywords don't quite work or whatever it might be on the, on the site. Google's pretty good at it, but individual websites are probably not quite so good. So whether it's a £10 pair of sunglasses or £5 pair of socks uh, or a £10,000 trip, um, the search experience on a, on a website is kind of very similar. And I think this is this is about to really change massively. I don't just mean using machine learning algorithms to help. I mean actually changing the way that users search. And this goes back to what I was saying earlier about keywords. I don't think we're going to be using or needing to distill things down into keywords, uh, you know, in the you know the next few years, really. Yeah, I, I get what you're saying. Like, I think as it evolves, I can just imagine being on a site where it it says like, "What do you What do you want to experience?" And you actually type in something like, "I want to experience a Caribbean sunset" or something like that. 
and it comes back with options for you and says this is the best time of the year this is these are the places you can visit these are the these are the places that give you the best vantage point here's an itinerary that works around that and the different options available to you and and here's some restaurants that might showcase some of the best etc 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 as opposed to where do you want to go exactly exactly that why should you be restricted to boiling down your your needs uh, to to a couple of keywords, how can you yep. ever possibly hope to find the the perfect thing for you? Which is what the internet really should be for. Is you've got this idea, how can you fulfil it? You know, obviously within reason. Yes, but yes. you know, you know, when you have a pretty niche thing that you're looking for and you just can't find it using the internet, or you find it really difficult to find it, or you might have to ask a friend or ask someone yeah. knowledgeable in that area. You end up on page 40 of, of yes. the Google search. You keep going through. Yeah. I think that will be gradually a thing of the past. Um, certainly, it will be on Google very soon. And I also think that e-commerce sites should be looking to follow and, and um, you know, and innovate in that, in that space to sort of change the mindset around how search works, around, around how humans search, because searching by keywords is actually super unnatural. You would never lean across to your mate and say uh, blue jeans you know you'd ask him have you found any jeans that fit you recently that's not a question i think i've ever asked uh, so probably a bad example but you understand yep. the, the point yep. I'm, I'm trying to make <laughs> yep <laughs> so i think that should be a thing of the past um pretty soon and that that's a really big that's kind of a seismic shift that, I, that i'm anticipating um in e-commerce and all the more important for high value because you're probably going to have fewer products um, but they're going to be very complex and helping your customer to find the right one for them with, you know, minimal interaction, minimal frustration, um, getting them to where they want to be as quickly as possible is extremely important for um, improving those conversion rates and ultimately uh, improving revenue and profit. Completely agree. And to be honest, I can't wait until we're in that position to be able to, I guess, navigate online in that way. Um, it has been fantastic having you on the podcast. Some great insights that we've covered. Thank you so much for being a part of it. Thanks for having me, John. Really enjoyed it. That was my interview with Gareth Ben discussing product management in the world of high value e-commerce. We explored the unique challenges and opportunities within the travel industry, the importance of data-driven decision-making and the evolving landscape of online search experiences. If you'd like to hear more from product people like Gareth and me, subscribe to the podcast and feel free to get in touch with me with any questions or suggestions for the pod on Let's Talk at userback.com. Until the next time, bye for now.